What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. Together with its customers, AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy to create a 100% carbon-free world. AES partners with organizations, no matter where they're at in their energy journey, to co-create the greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. AES's team of more than 500 clean energy innovators in the U.S. find solutions that are both economically viable and environmentally friendly. AES is also walking the walk to achieve net zero carbon emissions from electricity sales by 2040. Learn more about how AES can empower you to achieve your energy goals and create the energy future we all need at AES.com. What It Takes is also brought to you by DLA Piper, a full-service global law firm that works with leading technology companies and their investors to meet all their legal needs. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth, as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper has lawyers in 40 countries across the Americas, Middle East, Africa, and Asia Pacific, wherever you're doing business. DLA Piper delivers value to its clients. It helps startups go from garage to global, and it helps established technology companies to grow smartly. You can subscribe to DLA Piper's thought leadership events and publications at dlapiper.com. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Terry Juster, a solar technology veteran. Terry has seen it all in her four-decade career in solar and electronics. As both an engineer and an executive, she's learned that timing is everything in the energy business. Terry started her solar career in the late 1970s. She's since held operational and engineering positions at Shell, Siemens, SunPower, and Solaria, witnessing the initial evolution and eventual explosion of solar firsthand. We talked about applying operational lessons from big corporations to startups. This conversation was recorded live at the Women of Renewable Industries and Sustainable Energy Forum in Denver, Colorado in 2019. Terry, welcome to What It Takes. Thank you, Emily. Really happy to be here. All right. So, Terry, you grew up in uh, what you described as a huge family. I think there were nine of you. There so are eight of us. Eight of, eight <laughs> of you. Eight of you. So, tell us about um, tell us about your siblings. Um, I know your dad was an engineer building rockets. Your mom was a dancer. Uh, what influence did your family have on your character? Well, I did grow up in a great, huge family, and I'm second. I have five brothers. I always think that had something to do with my desire to be in a man's world, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, my dad was an engineer at Rockwell up at Edwards Air Force Base area where they were developing all the rockets and sort of high-powered planes and things, high-speed pl- planes. So interesting uh, place to be in the 60s and 70s, early 70s. Um, so uh, that was a lot of fun, and it was a small town, so it was really easy to, you know, roam around and be pretty free. And, and I always liked math, always enjoyed math as a kid, and uh, knew that I wanted to do something with that. So uh, growing up, that was uh, one of the pieces of who I knew who I, that I knew who I was. And loving math and science in middle school and high school, I, I imagine, especially at that time, you were one of the only girls in those classes. Is that true? And if so, what was that like? It's funny. I didn't really notice at the beginning. It was when I went to college that I so many times I was the only woman in the class. And um, fortunately, we had uh, I had a math teacher. I originally started as a math major who pulled me aside as my sophomore year and said, 
either you got to go all the way and get a PhD and be in academia, or you better switch to engineering so you can get a job because you're not going to get a job as a as a uh, uh, single degree math major. So I ended up switching to engineering, and I was really happy that I did. I ended up uh, looking at all the different uh, types of engineering and settled on mechanical. Um, and the school that I went to, Cal State Northridge, had a couple of female uh, professors who were quite progressive and started a women in science and engineering uh, club or sort of a society there on campus. So we always had a place to study, a lot of networking and support. Uh, even though you'd end up being the only woman in a class, you between classes and in the evenings and studying and such, you always had a network of folks you could rely on. Still friends to this day with a lot of them. And you mentioned, so you went to Cal State Northridge, which is in the LA area, um, graduated with an engineering degree in 1979. And I know you worked all through college um, at Hughes Aircraft building missiles and at IBM building computers. What did you discover about yourself in college that shaped your career trajectory? Well, I... Uh, I did take a solar energy course my senior year. Uh, a lot of it was focused on thermal, which uh, I was studying thermodynamics at the time. So that was a, a good fit. And we had a very small section on PV. But I found it so intriguing that the sun could create electricity. Uh, I was working for Hughes, and we were building missiles. And I just thought that isn't even though it's so challenging and technically, you know, quite sophisticated, I didn't really want to do that with my life. So I quit with all the bravado a 20-year-old has and realized I needed a job that night, you know, to <laughs> pay my rent the next month. Um, so I had a friend that was working for a small solar startup. Uh, Atlantic Richfield had just purchased uh, a company called Solar Technology. And he said, I'll send you a uh, send your resume in if you want. And they interviewed me literally the next day. And I was able to join them and work as an intern most of my senior year in college. So I uh, thought at the time I would go get a real job after that, but spent 28 years at that firm. Uh, changed hands a number of times, but uh, that was a really great part of sort of growing up as an engineer because it was the super early days of the solar business, but companies that had the wherewithal and uh, desire and strategy at the time to really push things forward. What did ARCO have that others didn't have at the time as it relates to solar research and development? Well, they had acquired this company whose history had, uh, the DNA of the company had been uh, Spectrolab uh, employees that split off. They had originally done space satellite cells and satellite modules, split off to do terrestrial solar uh, Arco acquired them, so there was a deep knowledge of how solar cells worked, uh, a lot of cost reduction and commercialization challenges to try and not use things that were $1,000 a watt, you know, as far as building um, uh, terrestrial flat plate modules. So, uh, in fact, my early boss was Charlie Gay, who's running the Department of Energy uh, solar and uh, solar energy technology program. So I worked for him for 12 years during that 28 year tenure and uh, talk about an advocate for women and a support uh, system to uh, take care of uh, all employees, uh, but really, really was looking out for female scientists and engineers. One of the things that I love about you that I found online was uh, a stat that you were working in solar when solar was rarely if ever used on earth at least pv that it was pretty much just being used for satellites um so so it was it was such early days um what was it like working on solar at at a sort a startup within a larger company um 
having now worked for startups after, you know, almost 30 years with large firms, uh, you never worried about money. And that was, doesn't mean that capital was easy to come by, but I never worried about payroll. You know, now that I run smaller companies, you, 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 part of your job is to make sure companies funded properly. Um, so those worries, excuse me, <clears throat> were not present in big companies because obviously they have big balance sheets. And, and at the time, Arco, followed by Siemens and then followed by Shell. You know, those are huge companies, very successful firms. Um, and they were looking at long-term uh, adoption and growth of renewable energies uh, because they knew uh, all those companies actually have multi-decade business plans. You know, for me being in my early 20s, I thought, my goodness, how can anybody ever look that far out in the future? But they were all looking at where things might go over you know, 20 to 50 years, actually. So that was their involvement at the time. I think it took those kinds of companies to support the kind of research. And uh, I like to say I was in the room when they made the decisions at Siemens to warrant modules for 25 years. And we had all of our uh, bathtub curves and failure rate analyses and all the data showing that they would last 30 to 40 years. These are modules. But in the end, uh, the CEO of the company at the time, he was a division head at Siemens, said, look, we're Siemens. We've been in business 100 years. We have the balance sheet. I love all this engineering, he said. But the truth is, this is a marketing. It's, it's important for the market to understand these can last. So we're going to take this step. And it was, for me, the first time I realized that the business part of solar really needed to take, you know, sort of the top tier, that uh, those companies did a wonderful job of helping support get uh, getting the initial um, reliability work done, et cetera, et cetera. But to to really promote it and become something big, they realized that commercial part of it was, I mean, that's obviously what they brought to the table. So you mentioned Arco getting acquired first by Siemens and then moving on to Shell. Um, did things change post-acquisition? Each of those companies has very different DNA. I'll say that. Um, oil companies, of course, have a certain uh, sort of explorer and uh, logistics mentality. Siemens was an electronics firm mostly, although we reported into the nuclear energy division. So that was kind of an interesting, uh, corporate, uh, relationship that the so this little solar business, you know, reported to this huge nuclear division. Um, I will say this after having worked for small companies and big companies, big companies do know how to treat people. You know, I, I'm very happy that I worked for big companies in the beginning because I think, uh, the human resource and human uh, capital ideas that come forward in big companies, uh, little companies can learn about that. You know, they don't need all the capital that the big companies have to adopt the kind of personnel standards and things that I like to say in, in little companies and particularly in startups, I would say it's hand to hand combat every day. You know, <laughs> And, uh, I think sometimes if you just can adapt some of the things that these big companies do well, I think it could, it can go a lot faster and smoother. As, as far as that treatment, uh, I imagine you were still in many cases, the only woman in the room, um, was that similar to what it was like in college? Did you have the same kind of network of support that you did then at, uh, first Siemens and then Shell? It's interesting. Um, the oil companies, I think were very progressive about diversity. Shell, I will say, and I, I had the really fortunate, um, uh, good luck to sit next to the CEO of Shell at a recent, in the last year, uh, uh, conference that I went to. And I told him, I learned more from that company about, uh, diversity and how to treat people than I could ever imagine. And, and it's in hindsight that it, a lot of it has sunk in. Um, and he seemed shocked. <laughs> I 
I said, no, really, you know, you, you really worked hard on communication. You really worked hard on uh, making sure that people had chances. Um, and a woman that I worked with uh, very briefly there, she's the CFO of Shell Worldwide now. I mean, they just have been super uh, thoughtful about diversity providing strength and, and diversity of people, but diversity of opinion. So I'm not here to promote Shell. I'm just really here to say that I think that some of the things that these big companies do, uh, you can learn from. One of our very first, actually our very first guest on What It Takes was Dick Swanson, the founder of SunPower. We also interviewed Dan Sugar, the former president of PowerLight that was acquired by SunPower. And so I know that while you were at, I think it was at Shell when you got the call from Dick Swanson at SunPower after the PowerLight acquisition, and Dick said, come come join us at SunPower. And what did you say? Uh, well, I ended up working for them. I really enjoyed that. I, I knew Dick from the early days of uh, at Arco. And in fact, springs into my mind, I got to attend the, is it the Gossamer Albatross, the PV plane that flew around the world? Uh, oh, Solar Impulse? Uh, was or no, before, before that, that. It was yeah. Paul McCready's, it was probably not the one that made it all the way around the world. I think right. it made it yeah. to <laughs> that Hawaii. Was but I got to see it land at Edwards with Dick Swanson and Bill Yerkes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were just marveling at, you know, like, wow, this is another thing these things could do. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um but I think at the time, the the industry is so small that it wasn't unusual that you knew these founders. I knew Dan uh, when he was at PowerLight, and I enjoyed that team. All of the SunPower and PowerLight team were so progressive and so enthusiastic. And so it was really a pleasure for me to go join them and work. Uh, it, I was living in uh, Southern California and co commuting up to Northern California. So um, that was probably the biggest challenge of that part of my career. Tell us about the work you were doing at SunPower at the time. Uh, at the time I moved from, so most of the work I had done at Arco Siemens Shell was technical and then operations. I ran the operation in Camarillo, uh, making ingots, wafers, cells, modules, helped uh, when Solar World acquired that company, move it up to Portland, Oregon. Um, and at, I switched gears quite a bit. I, all during that time, though, I really kept my finger on the pulse of doing technical work because I, I am an engineer. <laughs> so we had um, a number of Department of Energy projects on developing materials or developing efficiency methodologies. So I was always signing up to be the principal investigator and I'd write the reports on the weekend or in the evenings just so I could stay abreast of all the technical work that was going on. So SunPower hired me to uh, run this program called the Solar America Initiative. It was a $50 million uh, eight subcontract uh, project to develop um, significant improvement and cost reduction in the solar value chain. So it was really interesting because I was working with a number of different companies and alternative methods of making modules and installations cheaper. So it was more of a project management role. And uh, so it was really quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and then I know you got another call from a DOE colleague who wanted to recruit you to be an entrepreneur in residence, uh, to which you said, I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm an <laughs> operations person. So how did you come to accept that that new role? Well, I'd met through that work with the Department of Energy and doing this uh, principal investigation those years at Arco Siemens Shell and then onward at SunPower, uh, uh, Craig Cornelius, I don't know if many of you know him in the room, he went on to run a big part of NRG. Um, he called me and said uh, he was joining Hudson Clean Energy Partners. They'd raised a billion dollars for uh, clean energy and renewables investment and would I come be an EIR for the company? And I didn't really know what that meant, to be honest with you, but I, all, I did say what Emily said, I'm not an EIR, I'm an operations person and, you know, I really... 
and then I think I said, and I don't swim with sharks because it was an investment group, and they assured me they weren't sharks. <laughs> I've come to really appreciate what investment was, groups was do. Was that by true, the way. or, or no, did it they turn true. out to be sharks? <laughs> it was true. It was very, uh, it was very true. So I, um, but I think I didn't know what it all meant. So I quickly, like, worked work through and researched what an EIR did, and I thought, well, this is quite an opportunity, and uh, and then did that, and that was really my entree into smaller companies and understanding the capital cycle that makes small companies work. Um, I think Emily will, will ask me a question about founders. I'm not a founder. I'm a person that comes in and takes an idea and and works to commercialize it. That's what I love to do. And I did that a lot in the early days with sort of research out of the lab and putting it into the factory. Um, and I see that in uh, startups. That there's kind of a need for Let's make this business cycle as fast as we can. At uh, Soulpad, I'm famous for saying we're going to get off the dole. <laughs> we're going to stand our own two feet and uh, make our products and ship them and make our own money and reinvest in our own uh, growth. So um, I really love that part of business. What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. AES imagines a future that is 100% carbon-free, and it's doing the work today to make that future a reality. AES is partnering with organizations to help them transition to new, smarter, and cleaner solutions, all while continuing to meet their energy needs and give them a competitive edge. Creating a greener future for everyone means working together globally across industries of every kind, from utilities in Hawaii to corporations in Virginia and at every stage of development. In the U.S. alone, AES's clean energy business is leveraging its 2.5 gigawatt portfolio of renewables and 12 gigawatt development pipeline to co-create and scale innovative solutions like solar, wind, energy storage, and hybrid clean technology portfolios to make the biggest impact to both your sustainability and business goals. AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy. Learn more about how you can join at AES.com. What It Takes is also supported by DLA Piper. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth and success as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper's team of technology sector lawyers supports clients with their legal needs across the globe. As demand for zero carbon energy and other climate solutions grows, startups and established companies in the energy sector are looking to their lawyers to provide more than just legal knowledge. They're also seeking in-depth sector know-how and innovative solutions to the challenges they face. DLA Piper's energy lawyers deliver focused, creative sector advice wherever in the world clients need it. Being both global and local, DLA Piper understands the technical, geographical, commercial, and geopolitical factors that shape the energy sector. DLA Piper also has a podcast called Beyond the Curve, which features topics and guests from across the business spectrum. Its goal is to help businesses and communities navigate the challenges they face in today's world. You can find Beyond the Curve on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and find more about programs and publications at dlapiper.com. And so you were actually, you were on the capital side. You were actually getting pitched, deciding what to invest in. How was it being on that side of the table? What did it make you, did it make you feel a certain way about startups either that you wanted to join them or you wanted to distance yourself from them? You know, it, for me, it was so fascinating, the whole cycle of seed money. Uh, and about that time, I had been asked to be on a board of a small startup that I had, had had met a couple of the founders throughout the years. And I 
really started to understand both working at Hudson Inn uh, through that uh, board role that the capital cycles in these companies are what are their lifeblood. You know, that as you migrate through, you know, the small amount of money to get an idea formed and proven to the money that you need to take whatever that is, be it software or hardware or, you know, medicine to something that you can actually sell, those cycles I, I think are critical, you know, to how how this how how this whole business can be successful. And I mean renewable energy, because there's still so much left to do, right? And there's still so many good ideas and so many things to be finished. So uh, I came to really appreciate how important that work is. And after having joked about not swimming with sharks or not, you know, being capable of that, listening to pitches and being able to understand whether the, or help uh, the investment firm understand whether the science worked, whether the scalability could work. You know, that was, it was actually really rewarding and um, not something I would have thought I would do, actually. And that experience led you to become CEO for the first time of a company called Solaria. Tell us about how that came to be. It was actually um, Silicor. I Sorry about that. I, no, I probably no. told you the wrong thing. Um, so I joined a number of the different portfolio companies for periods of time. One thing you do realize, uh, in at least in that period of time, that it's a rocky road, right? I mean, as a scale-up takes place, some sometimes founders make it, sometimes they don't. And so there were a couple of times where I went in and sort of just stabilized a company while they hired new uh, executives. Uh, and then I ended up uh, being COO of Silicor Materials, which is a – I'd done all of the value chain from ingots to modules and uh, installs, but I'd never done the very front end of making silicon. And so it was a really industrial process. We were – out raising money for a large plant. Um, we had a small uh, facility in Toronto, Canada, and a cell-making facility in Sunnyvale, California. So I was COO, and I ended up moving to Toronto for a while. Um, and we realized that the silicon part of that business was really the strategic value. And we ended up uh, running the Toronto plant and selling the equipment in California uh, to focus on silicon. And that company today is building a plant in China, I'm still on the board of that company, and it's just a pleasure to see it come to fruition. But that was my – I was COO to begin with, and then I moved into the CEO role, and that was my first time sort of running the show, if you will. What was it like running the show? It, it In some ways, it was a natural migration because it's an operational company. It's making something, you know. Um, in some ways, it was, oh, my God, what have I gotten into? Because I was always uh, – picking up skills on the financial side throughout the years because cost and delivery and cash cycles, you know, in operations, all those things are important to make sure uh, you optimize your profit. Um, and so that, of course, I understood, but balance sheets and fundraising and all those things were not things that I had done myself. And so the CFO of that company um, a wonderful friend still. We, we were going all around the world raising money and I put two million, mi two million miles on with United during that period of time. It was wow. crazy. Fortunately, my kids were in college and out of college. So it was an easy time to be doing that. You know, it's not always easy in periods of time of your life to be gone, uh, 45 of 60 days. But, um, we were looking originally at building that plant in Iceland. So I spent, oh gosh, the better part of three years in Iceland, uh, three weeks out of the month. And then we were fundraising in Europe a lot and China. So 
those were places that I was kind of hopping. I even ended up in Middle East uh, fundraising. That was quite quite an adventure, wearing uh, the appropriate clothing and being respectful, of course, of of uh, minding the the customs there. So it was another one of those moments where you go, wow, you don't know where your career is going to go. <laughs> you don't have any idea standing there in that. It's beautiful Abaya, but thinking that isn't something that I would have thought there'd be a picture of me standing by a building in Riyadh. You know? <laughs> um, so really interesting parts of being uh, sort of the person in charge that I had never quite understood. Fortunately, I had a really good CFO by my side that we, we could really help each other out. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned at that point, your kids were already in college. I know you have two daughters, both of whom are in the STEM field. At what point uh, in, in the career that we just covered, did you have them? And if and how much of an impact did that have on your choices and trajectory in your career? I, I think this is one of the most difficult things women face. I mean, we talk a lot about it, but it is, it's a very difficult period of time in life. I think when you're uh, working and and trying to be everything to everybody. Um, so I had my kids when I was 32 and 35, and I was running uh, operations in Camarillo uh, for, let's see, that was under the Siemens days. And um, they, of course, being a big company, had nice maternity leave for that period of time. I took three months off with each child. Um, but when you get back, you're you're just sort of trying to keep it all together, you know, and make sure that you get home in time to help them and make sure that they're well cared for. And I just remember thinking, uh, if ever I was going to break, I felt like that was when I was going to break. That being said, I think that it's such a natural part of, if you decide to have children, it's such a natural part of, uh, of, of that decision. But I had an incredibly supportive husband and incredibly supportive, uh, sharing of responsibility. But in the end, I, I wish I could say it differently, but I, you know, I was a primary parent. When you're nursing, of course, that's part of it. When you're doing uh, certain things with with babies, it feels like natural to have the mother do it. I, I wish I could say it some other way, but I think it's one of the most difficult periods of time in a a working woman's life if she decides to have children. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned feeling close to that breaking point. What? prevented you from breaking or was there a break? <laughs> well, I was fortunate to have a lot of family members around me. So I had uh, brothers and sisters that were very helpful. My mom helped me babysit quite a bit, found good daycare. That was essential that you feel comfortable when you leave your children to somebody else's care. And thank goodness there are people that are good that are doing that. Thank goodness that helps the world go around, right? And, um, and I'm only speaking from my own personal experience, but I think that those were the things that helped kind of make me rebalance and say, I think I can do this. <laughs> I don't need to step out for long periods of time because I think that's the alternative. And and that's a good alternative too. Um, fortunately, again, with this network that I was able to create, I was able to sort of stick with it. Great. And then at what point were you recruited to join Soulpad? What did you know of the company? How did they how did they come to to find you? Well, I ended up um going to work for Solaria, which was a great experience as COO. They do a lot of their manufacturing overseas. So uh, I was working with the factories that they had contracted with. And in before I took that job, I had interviewed for a job at uh I'd gotten contacted by a recruiter to look at Soulpad. Um it wasn't the right time for me to join that company. Uh, then later, about a year later, I got contacted by the chairman of the board and a uh, primary investor, and he asked me if I would join the board. Uh, he said, we, we hadn't forgotten you. We'd really like you to be part of the company in some way. Um, and the more we talked, and I ended up 
this was sort of an odd uh, sort of natural transition. I ended up meeting the current CEO and we were spending this. He was not the founder, by the way. Um, he had done a lot of work with Solar City, and he was a CFO. Uh, we ended up having lunches together, and he said, you know, Terry, this is an operational company. This was so unusual. He said, the board would like you to take over as CEO. I'm going to go on the board if you're okay with that. <laughs> I said, well, that's not where this started, but, you know, <laughs> I guess if that's where this is leading. And I really like the product. Um, Soulpad is, uh, has an electrical, we call it an appliance, but it's a converter and storage system. Uh, a one-to-many PV panel to storage system, and uh, we're launching in Puerto Rico. And one of the reasons I, I didn't mention when I first started in solar is altruistically, I really felt like it was something that could change the world. And then I spent all these years on the commercialization, you know, and realizing it had to make money, got to make these things be cost-effective and perform well and and make uh, systems easy to install, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I thought, gosh, you know, Maybe I'll get to spend the rest, the last part of my career working on altruistic. It's a commercial entity, commercial product, but doing something good for Puerto Rico would be really wonderful. So we have $60 million worth of orders in Puerto Rico that we're going to start fulfilling this summer. And, uh, that island is just amazing. And, uh, I was there in December. The, uh, construction and the buildings are all fairly well healed. You wouldn't think that there had been a devastating hurricane there recently, but, you can see the weakness. You can see the weakness in the power lines. You can see that everybody did the best they could to prop it up, but it it definitely needs to be revamped. And, of course, the DOE and PREPA themselves have been working on the revamp program. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited about being able to spend some time helping customers and homeowners and folks in Puerto Rico uh, get strong backup power to uh, an improved grid. Can you talk a little bit more about the the product itself and uh, who the customer is? Yeah. Uh, it's a inverter and battery storage system that can work from, you can go as few as one panel, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to do that. Two to four, maybe can push that a little bit further. Residential uh, storage, inverter and storage system, more efficient than anything out in the market. It's a little bit of a marketing uh, pitch there, but um, so we're getting... Order it. We're actually in the process of ordering production parts now and gearing up with our manufacturing partner to uh, start shipping this summer. And Puerto Rico uh, has been a natural fit for us because the desire and the need is there. So they've been paying attention to this company for the last 18 months, two years, and have placed these orders and then just revamped them about a week ago to make sure we understood they want to be first in line to access to the product. So it's a highly efficient converter and storage system that is simple to install. We call it plug and play, but it's everything that you need. Uh, and then you connect to the to the grid at the end. Super simple. So I was at the product launch for Soulpad, which was at this very um, schwanky place in San Francisco called The Battery. It's this exclusive social club. And Soulpad rented out the penthouse, the roof deck, and had this, what I would, and I think many would describe as a very over-the-top launch party. There was a person in an astronaut suit who walked out with one of the Soulpads. And so a lot of investors who were there were like, what is this? Like, this is this is a lot. And so I'm curious, what's your sense of of the product launch. Um, you know, I think a lot of people 
had questions about the product that weren't necessarily answered at that time. What's been the evolution since then? I think that was at least a year and a half ago. At least that long, because I've been with the company about a year. Um, so I think I was telling Emily this before the, the interview that I think a lot of times the, well, thank goodness there's founders because their brilliance and enthusiasm, I think, strike a spark that, that, that can glow and burn, right? Um, I think a lot of times, so that enthusiasm precedes or exceeds maybe where you are in the business cycle. Um, so that product that was launched is a mobile unit. It's a beautiful product. Um, in the end, it's not what the company decided to do. So we're doing, you know, rooftop residential and small scale commercial, uh, energy storage and backup power for backup power, time of use shifting, all of the things that storage can do. Right. Um, so I think it's a case. I'm, I, I can't speak because I wasn't there about all the detail, but I think it's a case of where sort of enthusiasm and, uh, desire preceded uh, kind of where you were in the business cycle. Is that a fair comment? Very fair. Think? No, very fair, very pragmatic. Um, throughout all of these stages of your career, were there moments, not necessarily when you thought the companies would fail per se, although that that could have crossed your mind, are there moments where you thought you yourself would fail? You know, I think um, I think all of you in this room would agree you have to have a certain amount of perseverance. And I have to say, I never crossed my mind. I, the time I talk about breaking with, like feeling with my children when they were babies, I think it was more sort of emotional stress of not being able to do everything to whatever level we all have in our minds that we should be able to do these things. Um, but I think that maybe I, I'm just not bright enough to know that you can fail. I don't know. I, I think that, or maybe it's that I can go, home at the end of the day and say, wow, I've given that everything I've got. And if it makes it, I'm so happy. And if it doesn't, man, I did everything I could, you know, and I don't know. It's been easy in the solar business to feel that way because there's so much to do, right? <laughs> there's been no charted course or no, you know, prescriptive way that this needs to happen. So uh, talk about challenging and fun and learning. And um, it's been a it's been a wonderful place to be. I'll say that. Um, what were your most challenging moments? I think uh, there have been a couple. Um, I think early on when you launch something and you put like for a 25-year warranty and you have no idea whether that's – I mean you, you have some science that says it's going to make it, but nothing had been out there even five years, you know. I did lose some sleep over that. <laughs> um, on a personal level, the other thing I – being an operations person, um, the big companies really know how to deal with safety. Some of the smaller companies, I've had some situations where we've done things that were less than safe, and I had to respond to that, you know, and you have to, you really have to take a strong line, again, in making things, right? Usually, they're not hazard-free. There's some kind of thing you have to deal with, and I think you always have to remember people come first. I mean, it's in in how you treat them, obviously, but safety-wise, I think there have been a couple moments in my career, I think, oh, boy, that was a close call. And Did anyone ever get hurt? Uh, there was an injury in, in uh, Toronto. That's why I went up there. I remember my boss came in one day and said, you got to get up to Toronto and figure out what's going on. <laughs> and that's when I took that under my wing and went up and lived there. And really, we did a safety kind of stand down from top to bottom to figure out that the employee ended up being okay, gratefully, but it could have gone the other way. And I think it was super humbling for me to realize that in our haste to do things, 
you know, you have to be conscious of, 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 uh, of, of those risks. It's one of the things I think SunPower does really well. I, uh, uh, really commendable or really great kudos to both Tom and Dick and, and Bill Mulligan there really set things in motion to be super conscious of safety. And again, I think the big companies do it very well. They worry a lot about, they, they put in place the right kinds of programs that make people think about it. What lessons have taken the longest to learn? Gosh, you know, I, I, I think the hardest lesson for me has been, uh, I speak my mind, uh, but I usually kind of being an engineer, gather all the data first. I think the hardest lesson for me is timing. Like I, I think as I've gotten older, I understand kind of best when to strike if it's something new or bring up a new idea or change something. Um, and I think as I, I'm still learning every day, you know, a good idea cannot make it for bad timing and a bad idea can go too far if the timing isn't, you know, assessed properly. And so I think for me, that's one of the lessons. I also think, you know, confidence is always a struggle uh, when you're, uh, you know, a minority, I think. And, and I think while I've always felt confident, I think sometimes you have to force yourself to get in the mix. I think, you know, Sheryl Sandberg talks about leaning in. I think that isn't a natural feeling, as she describes in the book. I think you have to push yourself to step in. What did you teach your daughters about entrepreneurship and leadership in technology? Well, I, I think they learned from a lot of different places. Um, they learned from their dad. He was He's an engineer. They learned from playing sports. Uh, my oldest was a semi-pro surfer. We, I raised them in Carpinteria, and so they so grew up cool. in the water. And so, you know, she learned to compete. She learned to compete head, and, head on head with people. Um, my youngest is also an athlete. She's a, a kickboxer. I think they learn a lot from sports about confidence and um and they learned a lot about giving back i don't know that i taught that to them but they both feel very strongly about giving something back i was telling emily my youngest got an engineering degree and then taught uh robotics and uh math and machine shop at an all-girls school because she really wanted that population that she was teaching to see that there's plenty of opportunity out there and she said no one will ever hire me after this now and she was sure she would never get a job in a more traditional engineering field. Uh, and I said, of course, they know you can communicate. And be like, so I really felt like I was so, so, I was so much in admiration that she felt strongly to go do this, even at the risk of what she perceived as never being hired. She got hired two days later <laughs> in a, a company, a startup company in Santa Barbara. But I, I think that, um, whatever they saw, maybe partly, uh, they've been very environmentally conscious. My oldest, who still surfs every day if she can, um, she has a baby, so she's got her own work-life balance challenge. But I know she's a healthier mental person when she's <laughs> been in the water. Um, I think that gives her a unique perspective on the environment, having seen over her 27 years of life um, and, I don't know, 15 of that surfing or 17 of that surfing, seeing what changes have taken place in the ocean. She'll talk to me about it and what mm -hmm. she sees out there. And, mm -hmm. you know, so I think she's got firsthand sort of desire to help uh, preserve the environment. Mm -hmm. um, do you think being a woman has had an impact on how you lead? I do because I think, um, well, as I mentioned, I grew up with five brothers, so I'm not a very, uh, you can't, you can't intimidate me very easily, mm -hmm. but I do think that there are, um, 
ways that I, uh, being being who I am, look at uh, usually a little bit softer side of things before I act, particularly in personnel situations. I think for me, I, I really try to walk in their shoes and understand, unless it's really an egregious thing. Uh, I try to step back and give myself a day to think about whatever the problem is to uh, if it's a very serious situation, it, usually these are personnel things or maybe something having to do with safety, as I mentioned, to just try to compose a thoughtful course can change. And I always say, if I make a mistake, back up and admit your mistake and go forward. Um, but I think that, at least for me, I, I think there's a softer side of managing that women bring. Um, it still is direct and should be direct, but I think there's just these sort of softer edges, I think, that we can bring. Great. Where do you think SoulPad and our industry will be in five years? Gosh, um, you, you look at every statistic, it's growing, growing double digits, right? And isn't it nice to be an industry that has growth projections like that? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's going to continue to be uh, one of the largest growth sectors in, in, in the world of business, right? But I do think that some of the challenges that, in fact, I sat in on the energy uh, trading and policy shifting discussion, all of that is so foreign to me and so hard. You know, it just seems like making sure that keeps up with what we're doing uh, in the implementation and development side, uh, we need to make sure we support that well because... Uh, I think those are, are more difficult to get to change rapidly. Mm -hmm. Great. We're going to move into our high voltage round. So these are quick questions, quick answers. First question is, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? I think I would be a dolphin, actually, because I, the I would last also be a dolphin. 20 years I've grown up, by, I've been in the, by the water, a couple blocks from the water, and uh, they are beautiful creatures and they seem like they're always having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. What inspires you? Being here inspires me. I got to tell you, looking at at how many wonderfully talented and committed women there are here inspires me. I, um, gosh, just sort of taking a step back and thinking about the fact that we can change the way things are done. You know, when you look at these last X amount of years, there has been so much change in this energy uh, arena. That's what I have, you know, we all work in, but it can happen. You don't know when you start. I mean, I, there were lots of times we'd look at each other and say, is this solar thing going to be anything? We we were still going to work on it regardless, but, you know, is this really ever going to be anything for so many years? And, and so happy that it has, right? If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Uh, I've often thought about, I, I could have been a doctor, you know, um, only because I, I think that's also, at least for me, would have been an altruistic kind of a uh, career. But um, but I don't know that I could could I don't know that I could have the discipline to to train like they train <laughs> what they do. Um, but yeah, that would probably be the backup thing. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? I had such a wonderful and strong mother. I can't tell you. You can hear me. My voice break a little bit. She. Um, was a, a successful dancer before she had eight children and just, you know, really imparted in each of us uh, we could do anything we wanted. I don't know how she did that, but every single one of us has uh, knowledge that we could do anything or be anything we wanted. So she she was an amazing person. That's beautiful. Yeah. When have you failed? 
Oh, gosh. Well, I, you know, you let people down. It, it, I don't, I, I don't think it's every day, but you know, I, you know, when it happens, cause you think, oh my God, really? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say every week I must have some kind of failure cause there are feelings like that. We go, oh boy, I didn't, I didn't do that right. Or I didn't, um, fortunately it hasn't been anything that's created a huge problem, <laughs> um, but yeah. What's the hardest thing you've dealt with? I think uh because I I come from such a you know a communicative communicative background uh I think letting people go at work has been one of the biggest pains for me is I feel like that is a failure when you ask about failure it's a failure on my part that I either couldn't make it work or hired the wrong person or any number of things I think that rests I think always I feel squarely on me that, you know, if you can't make that work, it's, it's a very painful event still for me. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Um, I used to think that good ideas would always make it. And I don't think that anymore, actually. I think given the experience now in kind of the financial sectors and the way business and finance have to come together, Sometimes good ideas don't make it, which is unfortunate. And sometimes bad ideas, as I said before, go too far. And so I, I think that's one of the things I've really learned. When are you your best self? I think when I'm, uh, after I've been with people that I love and I'm doing good work and I have those rare moments where I feel like I've got work-life balance, <laughs> which is um, very satisfying when they happen. Mm-hmm. So capture them and feel good about them when they happen. Mm-hmm. What is your worst trait? Uh, I say yes too much. Yeah, I I don't I don't do well with no. I can't do that, you know, or no. I I shouldn't do that, or no. I don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, if there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Wow, I would say my daughters. Actually, I, it's funny because I think uh, they're old enough that they know who I am and what I do. Um, but to have them know that uh, that I'm sitting here with all these amazing women, I think would inspire them. Yeah. What are their names? Uh, Rachel and Erin. Shout out to Rachel and Erin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is your best quality? Oh, I've heard it's generosity, but I think it's sincerity. You know, I really do try to be present, and and if it's good news or bad news or whatever, just be authentic and sincere about it. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? Well, I can say being a leader, I think uh, bad leadership, bad timing, those two things. Success is? Success is, for a company, I think, obviously, profitability and stability and happy employees. Uh I think personally it's when you feel like you've accomplished something and that you and that accomplishment hopefully does something good for the world. I think that's a very satisfying feeling. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. Ooh. I might have gone on and gotten an advanced degree. I was working on my master's. I don't think about this often, but uh I was working so hard I I let that go and I think don't know that my career would have been much different. 
but maybe that's what I'll do in retirement. Just go get my <laughs> master's degree. I don't know. What would you get your master's degree in? Um, probably engineering. <laughs> <laughs> if the new, if the world knew me for one thing, it would be. Well, I hope they would say she made a difference in some way. I'm most proud of. Uh, of being in this industry. I, I'm really proud of that. And I've uh, spoken certainly about my kids. I'm really proud of them. Last question. To build a successful startup, what it takes is? I think it takes perseverance. I think it takes the right team. I think it takes uh, the right idea. Again, thankfully, founders are so creative and give the wonderful spark and, and glow, I like to say, to whatever the idea is. Um, and I think it takes money and it takes time. Please give a big round of applause for Terry Jester. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>